0: <clears throat> now this is recording
1: rti international center for forensic science presents just science <laughs> For the second season of Just Science, we will be delving into case studies. These case interviews include victim accounts, lawyers, investigators, and crime lab directors. They will tell you about cases they have personally worked during their career and what tactics they use to bring their victims justice. Season two of Just Science is funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Today's case involves a former Yankee baseball player, Mel Hall, the prosecutor, Kim Davignon, who brought him to justice, and one of his victims, Chaz Easterly. Kim and Chaz discuss victimology and how to handle cases involving children who have experienced sexual assault. Some content in this podcast is sensitive and may evoke emotional responses or may not be appropriate for younger audiences. Here's your host, Dr. John Morgan.
2: Hello and welcome to the Just Science Podcast. This is John Morgan. We're uh, very pleased today to have some very unusual guests for the podcast. We have Kim D'Avignon, who is the Assistant District Attorney for Tarrant County, Texas. Kim has been the Assistant District Attorney for 15 years there and has worked in numerous sections of the office, including narcotics, family violence, and crimes against children, and is currently a felony court chief. During her eight years at the unit, Kim has tried dozens of cases involving the physical and sexual abuse of children, as well as child homicides. She tried the Mel Hall case, which is the focus of our podcast today, in 2009, and remains in touch with many of the victims from the Mel Hall case. And our other guest today is Chaz Easterly. Chaz has been uh, married to her husband, Stuart, for 16 years, has three wonderful children, ages 15, 13, and 11, and is an entrepreneur and founder of the Linden and Flax Home and LNF a Home Design Firm. And has started a ministry for middle and high school girls that encourages and builds girls up in their faith. In their confidence and in their self-worth. So uh, welcome, Kim, and welcome, Chaz, to Just Science. Thank you so much for being on.
0: Thank you for having us.
2: So um, please start uh, a, a little bit with some of the background. Let's start with you, Kim. How did you get started into this particular case? How did this case come to you, and, and how did you first learn about this?
0: Sure. Well, it was back in 2007, and I was working as a crimes against children prosecutor in uh, Tarrant County, Texas, and it started for us in a way that had nothing to do with who he was, which I think is important. Also, I'm going to be really honest, not a baseball fan, so I truly had no idea. (laughs) Unfortunately, in our community, uh, we have a specialized unit that has to deal with child abuse because there is so much of it. And in particular, my office and my unit are tasked with dealing with cases that involve what we call authoritative figure molesters. And so that's your coaches, your teachers, your preachers, anyone that's using their position to gain access to children. Because we know from both experience and and from statistics that when you have someone in that position who is molesting children, chances are there's going to be multiple victims. And so you really have to have the ability to, if you will, dig down and figure out what all is going on. So this case started for us. A young girl, um, and we're going to use pseudonyms for this, but a young girl had been molested by Mel Hall when she was 14. Uh, we'll call her Katie. And Katie had gone on to college, was doing great, but it just bothered her that she never told well, surely he's not still coaching is kind of what she thought. And she looked up, and he was still coaching. And so she called the police. And from there, that just started unraveling what came to us as a multi-victim case that spanned years and years and years. At first, we thought we just had a case that involved a local coach involving, you know, children that he was coaching. Girls mostly ages about 13, 14, 15. That was kind of his target age. Like I said, I'm not a baseball fan, so I didn't know... This name. I didn't know Mel Hall. But as, as I got the case and I started looking, I realized he was trading on the celebrity of who he was to gain trust with the family. And as I started digging, we kept hearing all of these things about, well, we always knew Mel Hall liked him young. I kept hearing that phrase over and over again in like internet forums and all this stuff. And we couldn't figure out what that meant. As we were digging, we kept hearing over and over about there was this idea that he had a prom picture with a young girl in a Yankees playbook that had been given out to fans that entire year in the season. And we just kept thinking, well, that can't be true. Like, but we kept seeing it in comment after comment. And then we got a call that really broke the case wide open for us and, and changed everything. And that call was, was Chad.
2: So as it turned out, of course, there were a number of victims. In this case, just like you're saying, is is very, very common. It's extraordinary to me, and, and very disturbing as a parent. I have three kids myself, including a daughter who is 16, and the idea that someone would exploit her in this way is disturbing. It's incredible to imagine that an individual could use their position in this way and be able to get away with it for as long as he did. It, these activities ended for what a decade and a half or longer
0: yeah literally up until we arrested him he had new victims we honestly will never know the full count of victims because even after trial we got word that more girls had come forward to other teammates and said it happened to me too but i I didn't want to go through the trial so we know there's more girls than we even knew about at trial but it was like team to team year to year so who knows how many victims he had we know how many we had who were willing to come in and testify but that's a very different number than what I think he ultimately had. But yes, I mean, between Chaz and the girls we were prosecuting, we're talking 20 years, 20 years of girls being molested. And I don't think he took big breaks in between. The reason we specialize these cases out is it is exactly the position he holds over these girls and these families that he uses to manipulate them into the abuse. And these families were not super rich families. They were families who were giving the money they had to ensure that their daughters got to participate at the highest level they possibly do in these sports, it meant everything to them, and he knew it, and he used it against the families, and he used it against the girls to get what he wanted. And that's his pattern. Unfortunately, that's the pattern of most people in this type of abusive relationship and in an authoritative relationship. They find what's important to you, and they use it against you, and that's how they get what they want. So,
2: Chaz, I appreciate that you've actually tried to take this Uh, tragedy that's occurred and turn it into something where you're educating people and trying to help young women become not only more confident, but also heal from their own wounds as well. Tell me about your perspective on this and what uh, you can share with us about your own particular involvement here.
0: Well, I think being in that relationship with him, that's what I thought it was. It was a relationship. At that time, I was 15 years old until I was 18, and I thought it was a dysfunctional relationship, and so until I met Kim and walked into her office, coming to Texas to prosecute this trial. Again, it was not my trial; just I was there on behalf of the girls. But not until Kim said, "You were abused, and he is a predator." You know, I thought that, but I didn't believe it because I didn't give myself the force to think that I should be responsible. And so hearing him tell me those words is really when things changed for me It realized what I was dealing with and really understanding in Texas that I was a victim of abuse and child abuse and I never looked at that because it was a lot of the times when it was brought up in my circle, people dismissed it and were very dismissive of it because no one wants to talk about sexual abuse. It's strong language to them. Or no one wants to say, it, he's a predator, that wasn't a word you heard in 1989, and then it became more common, more awareness. And then when I heard it from Kim, it's really the first time I knew that I was abused. And that was where everything really changed in that trial, seeing his pattern, seeing what he continued to do to these girls, and a lot of different emotions, feeling guilty that I didn't recognize it sooner, and I didn't do anything, and I never checked up on him. But then it's been a a process for me to really, once he was put in jail, and really realizing he was put in jail because he was an abuser than dealing with that, you know, past eight, ten years of realizing what had happened and really coming to terms with it.
2: During your time, you never really considered it to be something other than a dysfunctional relationship. And But what about the adults around, other adults around? I mean, did anybody else raise the issue, or was there just how did people around you Uh, act about something that may have at least on the surface seemed to a lot of folks seemed inappropriate.
0: So in our community, uh, it it was a, you know, a small community, but um, a lot of Yankee fans. So I think the uniform he wore gave him almost a pass in a lot of ways. And so we had a sergeant in our police force that wanted tickets to the game and wanted signed autographs. And my high school principal wanted to know if he can get great seats. and my parents, you know, bought into it, too. One of the things with predators, they're also massive manipulators. And so he came in. My parents were in hard times. And I think if you would have given them a crumb, that's all they really needed. And he kind of threw out a crumb and they jumped on it. And I don't think they looked at it for what it was or they were in denial initially. That's just a whole other thing. But it was around me, I think, why I didn't think it was abuse is because it was so accepted. I mean, the Yankees were I'm sitting in the Y section. The limo drivers are driving us. I'm I'm 15 in the limousine. No one says a word other than can I get tickets? Can I get an autograph? If they were thinking it, they were not saying it. So the moments that I had, like, this isn't right, and I would say to him, I don't feel comfortable. I'm scared. Um, I feel like this is wrong. He would say, look around you. Everyone loves me. and Or he'd say, I love you so much and you just don't understand what love is. And, and good manipulators know what to say at the right time. And so when there was any question in my mind, and I would actually speak it, it was, look around. Your mother loves me. Your father loves me. I'm part of your family. Your principal loves me. Those sheriffs love me. All of your friends love me. And um, so, no, if they were thinking it, they were not saying it.
2: In some of the other cases that I read about, there were people who actually witnessed the abuse of some of these young girls. Did anyone ever witness the abuse in your case?
0: I mean, no one ever saw the sexual acts, but they would see he was very overprotective and overbearing. If I was at the stadium, I had to sit in a certain seat, and he would sit at the corner of the dugout and watch me, and I couldn't look left or right, and people would laugh at, oh, how much he loves you, he's so overprotective, and they would almost give it a pass, That's what love looks like. He's just protecting you, and and that was, I heard that from family members as well. Everyone saw his overbearing if he went on a road trip. You know, I'd have to stay on the phone overnight so he would know, now I'm 15, 16, I wasn't going anywhere, but he was so over the top with his control that the phone had to be off the hook so he would know that I didn't leave or I was always there. So people saw that part. Family did see when he locked me in a closet on an occasion because he didn't want me to wear shorts. He wanted me to change, so put on pants, or you can't come out of the closet. But not in the sexual part. No one saw that.
2: So there was an overlay of physical and mental abuse here. Did mm-hmm. you ever feel during that time yourself that you know you were at least a, a victim of you know physical abuse or mental abuse?
0: Honestly, at that time, I didn't. I would try to just be peaceful and not cause a problem. So if he didn't want me to wear shorts, I would problem solve and not wear shorts. He would, you know, be so angry. He would never hit me, but he would play mind games, but I didn't recognize it as mental abuse, which I think a lot of people think in this situation, they think, I just need to be better. If I was more accommodating, if I listened to him, if I just wore pants, he wouldn't get mad, and someone like him who preys on this. He would say, look what you do. Everything I do for you, you just can't listen to one thing. I just don't want you to wear shorts. Look at what I do for your family. And it would always come back to me just trying to accommodate and appease and just not make a wave. But I never looked at it until I got out of it and kind of saw a bird's eye view. It's a a bad relationship. That's kind of how I labeled it.
2: And Kim, as you alluded to earlier, all of that kind of controlling behavior Mm -hmm. is part of the mix here. Tell me more about kind of the, the environment around these cases, especially with regard to some of these, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire. I mean, if you have a, an adult man who's being abusive in that way also and manipulative in that way, mm-hmm. I mean, that might raise some issues with folks. I mean, how does that usually work?
0: Well, I mean, I think what's really interesting to think about is, and I've talked with Chad a lot throughout the years, and it has bothered me a lot throughout the years, when it was going on with her, Everyone just kind of shrugged their shoulder and went, I mean, she's a pretty young lady, so we all kind of get why Mel Hall would want to date her. Well, she was 15 and he was 29. That's not okay, but they had this idea like, well, that's not really pedophilia, but it is because the older he got, he still kept dating 13, 14, 15-year-old girls. So her relationship is only varies from the other girls in that he could do it out in the open By the time he got the girls in Texas in 1999, he's 40 and they're 13. Now we want to call him a pedophile. But honestly, if you look at his patterns, they're exactly the same. The same things he did with Chaz back in front of her family is the same things he was doing with these girls. It was all about, I'm going to be the one that tells you you're pretty. You're going to do the things I want you to do. And when you're 13, 14, 15-year-old girl, you don't have the life skills and the self-confidence and any of that to say, no, that's not okay with me. That's you're, you're building those skills, but you're not there. And so when you have an older man who is so far above you on the control and the authoritative scale, they can convince you of their reality because you don't have the experience to back up and say, nope, that's not how it's going to be. And so he used the same predator skills on these girls, but in, you know, with these girls he would do things like, if they wouldn't give him what he wanted sexually, he would pull them from a game that he knew college scouts were at. He would do those kind of things. And so, like I said, he picks the thing that's important to that girl, and he uses it against him. And what frustrated me to no end, listening to Chaz's story years after it happened, was that no one wanted to call him what he was, which was a pedophile. As a matter of fact, I found an article when I was trying to figure out who Chaz was. It was an article that was written in 2003. so before my girls in Texas had ever told anyone what had happened, it was a a sports article and it said, have I wronged this man by claiming statutory rape? I mean, people are trying to basically apologize to him online about the fact that he had sex with an underage girl and everyone basically knew about it and turned the other way because, well, hmm, I mean, she's a pretty young lady, it's probably fine, and it's just not. And it is incredibly frustrating to me that looking the other way and turning the other cheek resulted in victim after victim after victim. It mm-hmm. reminds yeah. me
2: of the Sandusky case in that regard. I mean, mm-hmm. You know, he had a power relationship there, and there were certainly a number of people who noticed something wrong and decided that they were going to look the other way. Um, and that seems like it's part of the pattern here, too, in these cases. They seem to have you know, a power over other people as well as their victim.
0: When Sandusky came out, I remember people just being astounded and shocked, and I can't believe this, and I will tell you, and any child abuse prosecutor will tell you, the only thing that made Sandusky special was that people knew the names of the people surrounding it, because everything that we saw in Sandusky is everything we see in these cases, and people were just astounded, like, there's no way people would know something was going on and not tell, and I every day, every day in my career, I talk to people who turn the other cheeks, I talk to mothers who decide to stay with abusers. There is this idea that we think we understand how abuse affects people and families and communities, and we truly don't. We, we put in our own agenda. Communities say, oh, if I saw something, I would do something. But the truth is, they don't. I teach child abuse prevention, and one of the things I teach people is, we have got to start listening to our gut. And I give them this example because I think it's the best example. When I try cases like Mel Hall or other cases where it's a, a preacher, a teacher, whatever, When I go back to, let's say, the team, and I say, listen, there's been an allegation of abuse of one of your teammates. Every single time I've had a case like that, the other people have guessed which girl it was without me saying who it was. And that's because they felt it. They felt there was something off about the relationship that they were seeing. But everyone goes, "It's none of my business, or I must be misinterpreting, or whatever justification they're going to give themselves, in the same way people did in the Sandusky case, They give themselves that justification and they say, it's not my job to delve into this and I'm not going to. But if you can guess which kid it is and you saw enough to know something was off and they don't do anything about it, we as a society have got to start doing something about it when we see it. If I can, to add to that, when a child is looking around them and their fear of influence, when the child feels it in their gut, when I felt it in my gut, when you look around you and no one's saying anything, you dismiss what you think the one that's being abused dismisses it, it, and you start thinking, well, I'm dramatic. I remember when I would bring it up, I would be labeled from my parents, you're so dramatic, because those words you don't say, because they were heavy words. And so I will say, and Kim knows this, and I don't know if we talked about this in court, but when we moved into New York, the one person that said something, I was walking down the street, and we had lived in Trump Tower at the time, and he did not see my circle. He didn't see my parents, he didn't see my brother, he didn't see my principal, he didn't see police but Mel had rented an apartment in Trump Tower, and we had a couple occasions where we met Donald Trump, and then when I was alone, the one time I was alone that I ran into him, he stopped me dead in the street, and he said, what are you doing with this guy? I don't understand, but you need to get out of this. And I didn't really understand what he was talking about because he was the first person to say something, and he didn't really know me. He just saw I'm living in this apartment with this grown-up that was the only person, I think there's something to that when everyone around you thinks it's fine, but that one person who really didn't know me, this is not fine if you're living with a 27-year-old. As prosecutors, it's really important to understand, and it's funny because this is a a science broadcast, there isn't a lot of science that goes along with child molestation. And so kids just, they take on this idea of no one's going to believe me, no one will ever believe me, so I should just not tell. And the the abuser's part of that dynamic. They tell them no one's going to believe them. And so... There's not usually science in child abuse cases. There's just not. And so we are dealing in this realm of having to work with kids who really believe that up until the moment they actually do tell that no one's going to believe them. And so they let it go on for years and years. And and even after the abuse, they keep the secret for years and years because they don't think anyone's going to believe them. And honestly, as a society, we prove them right a lot of times. We don't believe them. They tell their mother, and their mother looks the other way. Strangers see stuff, and people look the other way. We have got to start reaching out and helping the kids that are asking for help and giving it to them, not looking the other way.
2: Yeah. Again, to try to generalize a little bit, the thing about the Sandusky case, again, is that it didn't break until some of the victims had become adults and Mm -hmm had started to come forward. And that's the case here, too. Isn't that the case with the help of the Hall case? Absolutely. And that's really, unfortunately, is a very sad statement, right? What can law enforcement do in, to try to encourage or to try to understand these cases in order to, to get into these cases earlier to prevent more victimization? Is there anything that we can glean from what you've learned in that regard?
0: Research has shown that The most effective tool a community has in actually preventing child abuse, stopping child abuse, and also prosecuting those who are abusing is to teach the community what to look for and, when they see it, what to do with it. We go back to the idea that people don't know what to do with it. They think it's none of their business. It's a family issue. All of these things come up in child abuse cases. If we can communicate with a community not only what to look for but what to do with what they see, then kids who are like Chaz was, looking around going, wait a minute, did someone see something? Does someone know something? Can someone help me? They're actually going to get the help they need. And if we prosecute, if we if we do those kind of things, you can actually reduce child abuse. It's better than any play it safe program or good touch, bad touch program, because that doesn't work as well as telling the adults what to look for when the kids are in need. Law enforcement needs to not be scared of these cases. It's really hard especially in communities that don't prosecute these cases a lot, to understand that, yes, at the end of the day, you are probably going to be prosecuting the case with, and everyone hates to say this, but nothing more than a child's word. We're not going to have science to back it up. We're just not. So what do you look for? You still have to corroborate. You just corroborate in different ways. You look for what did other people see in a grooming-type way. You look for what can I show in a timeline that shows why would a child remember a very specific Tuesday afternoon that this happened? And I can verify it because I can look at a team schedule and show that on this Tuesday afternoon she was in this place. Why would a child remember that date ten years later if nothing happened on that day? So you have to look at corroboration in a different way than we normally think of with most crimes. Most crimes we're looking for scientific corroboration. In kid cases, we're not. Yeah.
2: So Chaz, you've actually, and and I guess both of you really have done a lot of work with young women, young girls, to try to uh, uh, help them become more confident. Tell me a little bit, Chez, about the work that you do and how it relates to the lessons you learned as a victim here.
0: Like I said, I have three children, and I have two boys and a daughter. My daughter, you know, every year she gets closer to the age that it happened. It becomes more and more shocking to me that it could have happened, and that, and I look at her age once I kind of left the trial, went home, started processing and really understanding what happened, figuring it out, going into some in-depth counseling. Coming out of it, I realized, had I been in a situation as a young girl, that I was praised and I believed that I was more than just a pretty face. I was always told, smile and look pretty. I didn't have a lot of self-worth or value other than my looks. So when a predator comes along and you think your value is your body and your looks, it's perfect for a predator. So I saw that in counseling that I didn't really value myself and I thought the only thing I had to offer wasn't brains, wasn't anything other than a pretty face. And so I wanted to not only raise my daughter to understand who she was and um, understanding her value and, and self-worth. As I would talk to my daughter, I'm like, oh my goodness, and I talked to her friends, I'm like, girls don't understand who they are. So when someone comes and they're praying and they, they decide to tell you who they think you are, it's easy. It's that's why the predators, because it's easy prey. They don't understand who they are. So that's really how it started. And our heart has always been in this ministry is knowing who you are. That they are a gift from God. They are valuable. They are beautiful. They are kind and all these amazing things. And then really starting at that foundation, who they are in Christ, and then who they are as a person, giving, generous. We do mission trips. We. Um, serve the community and just they're more than just a pretty faith and that's kind of been our platform and one of the verses we use because it is a faith group is not letting anyone look down on you because you're young so set an example in faith love speech and purity and that those are great things to be and from someone who grew up there wasn't a lot of purity there was a lot of pain there was a lot of abuse there was a lot of sex there was a lot of ugly I don't want any other girl to go through that. And there's a lot of pain that I carried for the young girls in Texas that I didn't do something. So it's almost another way to heal and restore and take this young group of girls that really, with a world like social media, they're finding their value in likes and how many followers they have. Really, their value is so much greater and so much more. And had I known that at 15, I probably wouldn't have had this guy sleeping in my bedroom. I probably would have known this is not right. This is not who I am. I'm a daughter. Of Christ and this is not right and there's so many girls that don't know who they are and they are finding their worth through what people think of them on social media and what they show people I mean what is happening and I haven't talked to Kim like about this but what girls are doing on social media to get attention and the the news that are sent and I mean we talk about about that often and what is coming through social media it's unbelievable and it's because girls want attention they feel if they show themselves naked they're going to get a hundred likes, and everyone's going to talk about them at school, and they're they're enjoying that right now. We have a society that's appealing to them, and so we're just trying to kind of strip that away and say that that's really you're so much more than that.
2: Yeah, I've, again, as a parent myself, I am that is something that really concerns me. I, it concerns me on two levels. I mean, one is that the social media expo, exposes these kids to a world that I would rather they not be exposed to, <laughs> and gives them motivations that I, I wish they could at least put off until they were a little older and, like you're saying, had a better sense of who, who they were and, and their values and, and that kind of thing. The other thing, I think it, it tends to make kids a little more isolated. Like you're saying, they want attention, in the, on this heavy social media world where kids are living mm-hmm. by their phone, they seem like they might be, it might, they might be more vulnerable to a mail hall because mm-hmm. they are so isolated.
0: Yeah, a very easy target predators that are online predators not only just your coach now and possibly a teacher or even a family member, but now you've got online predators. It's another level of uh, just destruction. I mean, there's a lot of destruction in so many avenues. I know Kim knows this, but we've seen a lot in social media and performing sexual acts on social media, and it, it's happening. I live in a very small, sweet community and wouldn't think this, but girls in our area, my daughter's friends are um, performing acts on social media self servicing boys, and they're in eighth grade. So it's sick. It's a problem, and, you know, being a, someone who's gone through this, whatever I can do is to just te- let girls know who they really are instead of the whisper they hear from a predator or a coach mm-hmm. who's got wrong motives. They need more voices like us and Tim and, and people in the community that actually do something and show truth in their voice instead of deceiving them
2: again that makes it makes it kind of difficult because one of the great things about when I was growing up is that all those institutions were stronger right the church was stronger the mm-hmm. uh, you know the community groups were stronger the, there was a certain connectedness in community and we have lost that I know that there were some people who abused their authority mm-hmm. through those institutions but then I think we lost something mm-hmm. greater it, it it's it's wonderful that you're working so hard to try to Build up institutions again. That, but uh, hopefully, that they'll be healthier institutions as well. So,
0: really like Kim said, it starts with the community and having strong leaders. I'm not under an umbrella of a church at all, but I'm I'm just opening my home and my heart. And these girls come. They want to hear who they are. They want. They cry. They tell me things that you never think they would tell me because they wanna talk, which is amazing. But they need someone who's going to be open to hear and someone who's gonna open the door and open their heart and, and hear and not judge them and love them and speak to you know what, just don't do that. You're better than that. You don't need to do that. And you know, as a as a prosecutor and just as I work a lot with kids outside of work, I work with kids who are grieving. And if I've learned one thing, it's that kids nowadays are hungry hungry for adults to sit down and talk to them. Because adults, we're we're all doing a really bad job of letting technology, phones, social media, all that take over our own lives, too. And so kids don't sit down and talk. And so when they find an adult like Chaz who's willing to just sit down and talk to them, man, it's like they're seeing the sun for the first time. It's amazing how much kids really want the connection that we think somehow they don't. We think, oh, they're kids. They'd rather be on the phone. They'd rather be playing video games. But the truth is, they'd rather be talking to you. We just don't do enough of that.
2: The other lesson I see here, and it's one that I, I definitely see more broadly, and that is the, the whole idea of not letting the culture of what you're in the middle of dictate to you if you, don't, if you feel that gut feeling that something's not right. I think sometimes we, have a, mm-hmm. we do have a tendency to get into some group think. And we might be unwilling to speak up. We might be unwilling to challenge authority. You know, in the modern world, the only way to truly be effective is to be somebody who's willing to question the authority of when something is, is not right. And that's true in these cases. It's true in a lot of everyday life in work and personal life where, you know, you have to be willing to say, you know what, I've thought about this and there's something wrong here and I'm, I'm, I'm willing to be the one to speak up. Mm-hmm. And it's really sad when you see these kind of a, an incredible tragedy because there were so many people, there were probably thousands of people that failed to speak up about Mel Hall. Mm-hmm.
0: Yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, they wanted an autograph. They wanted a ball. They wanted something monetary. It was like the, everyone was blinded by the stuff, by what he was offering in the physical. And I think he knew that, and he, that's why he lavished with gifts particularly speaking for my family and get and it's just amazing what people will do especially with someone like you mentioned the coach earlier with Mel other athletes that they have done this they use their celebrity for their cover and it's like a celebrity wouldn't do that Sandusky would never do that and it is the perfect cover and so I wonder how many athletes we don't know about and the victims and no one wants to speak against the athlete and most athletes have their victim in that position where if you do this to me, I'll lose everything, which was said to me. You know. He has so much to lose, not me, not my you know, purity. It was what his loss was, and that is, not only is he a pedophile, he was a narcissist. It was about him, and um, it's about their means to an end, and not what's happening on the other side.
2: So for prosecutors or police who are faced with these cases, are there resources that they can go to to try to learn how to approach these cases successfully and and get them to a proper conclusion? What resources can we offer to such people?
0: I mean, I think that if you're just starting out, you need to reach out to to resources everywhere. Um, There's a lot of really good child abuse organizations. You know, I did training that. Depending on your state, um, that's what's hard, because it's usually very state-based, because every state has different laws. I know in Texas, there's a lot of great resources. You know, just really understanding the dynamics of sexual abuse is the key to doing a good job, because your victims have to trust you with the biggest secret of their life, and that mm-hmm. you're going to be respectful, and that you're going to handle it and handle them in a, in a very respectful way. And that can be hard. I mean, imagine you're 7, 8, 10 years old, and you're testifying against your dad. That's an impossible situation. But It's one that I have to do all the time in my job. You know, the biggest lesson I ever learned was don't tell a kid, don't worry, I'm going to lock him up for life. Because as a prosecutor, that's what I want to do, obviously. That's what I'm trying to do when I find out a 10 year olds being abused by their dad. But what I had to come to learn was in victimology, here's the thing, that's still their dad. And they still have a relationship with that person. And they still have parts of that person they love. They don't like the sexual abuse. They want that to stop. But that's not how they define that person. That's how I define the person. I look at them and I think, this is the abuse. This is what I'm here to do. But if I tell them, don't worry, I'm going to lock your dad up for life, that kid is done. They're not going to help me in the prosecution because they're going to feel responsible for sending their their dad to prison, and they're going to feel all the emotions. I mean, grief is the best word, grief, because this person's going to be gone. I have to explain to them in a very respectful way something bad has happened and there are consequences Depending on their age level, you talk to them about their consequences. But you don't tell them their dad is a bad person because they can't hear that at 10 years old. They just can't. And so you have to take the time to learn victimology. You need to meet with people like forensic interviewers who interview children all day long, child abuse pediatricians who can help explain this dynamic. They don't teach us anything about anything about child abuse in law school. They maybe show us the laws in a page in the book. They don't teach us about how do you talk to a 10-year-old? You've got to reach out and talk to the professionals who are trained in that. And the better you are at working with your victim, the better your case is. And so to me, there's lots of resources, but the very first resource is you've got to become comfortable with how am I going to work with this child or this adult who is talking about something that happened when they were a child. And you can't just assume that you're going to know how they're going to feel.
2: Mm-hmm. And Chaz, would you like to add anything to that? That was excellent, by the way.
0: It was excellent, and (laughs) I've been here thinking, you know, I stayed in this relationship, and just like Kim mentioned, you know, a 10-year-old saying that's my dad, I felt like I loved this person because that's what I thought love was. Initially, I didn't think that was love, but then I was trained to believe that that's what it was. So I was all in, and to the point of, protecting him from my family. You know, he had me believing my family was wrong. Everyone around me was wrong, and he was the only right. And you want to protect him. I didn't want to tell because I didn't want to ruin his career. And I had a level of protecting him, which is ironic, because he was not protecting me. But I wanted to protect his career, and I knew if I said something to my mom, you know, she might use it to benefit in some way, and I was protecting him. And I, I think that's such a valid point that going back to the community, a 15-year-old cannot understand the mind game, it can't understand this is wrong, I want to say something, but I, I feel like I have to protect him as well. It's the hardest thing to understand, and I was talking to my husband today in the car, why did I protect him? It's what you do because you feel they've got you so manipulated that you feel like that's your job. You need to protect them. And I. I don't understand it till this day, but it's valid and it's true. And even till this day, he's in jail, there are times that I sometimes think, oh, my gosh, you know, the poor guy. And I'm like, what am I thinking? I'll I'll go across the channel and I'll see something where there's people in jail and like, oh, my gosh, that's his every day. He's in jail. And there's a part of me that has sympathy and I'm like, wait, that is wrong. That's not healthy, that he is there because he's a pedophile and I go back to that language and not excusing it, but there is something to that that you protect your abuser, and I don't understand it.
2: Yeah. Well, I'm very sorry for what happened to you, but I'm, I'm so thankful that you've chosen to take that and be a blessing to so many others. Mm-hmm. And, Thank and, you. Yeah. So that's an amazing thing. And we certainly do appreciate your willingness to share with us, and Kim, we appreciate your work as well, its uh, really amazing. It's, it must be very difficult in many ways, or it can be very emotionally trying. So uh, thank you for hanging in there and, and doing your work as well.
0: Thank you so much for letting us share. You know, without people like Chad who are finally willing to come into the light and say, this is what happened. I mean, you talk about our biggest tool. Our biggest tool is to give people the power to do that, and, and her her example. And the more we can get it out there in the world, the more people will maybe go, if she can do it, I can do it. And that's that's all we can hope that comes out of something like this. We can't change what happened, but hopefully we can change for someone else. We can maybe make something better. And, and truly that victims can live a whole and healthy life. And you can raise a healthy family. A lot of the times you see the crime, we see our court TV, we see they go to jail, you don't, you don't hear the end of the story. Not all, but in a lot of ways, some of these young girls that were at the trial have amazing endings, and most of them, I think, all are happily married and have children, are very successful in their life. I called Kim a year ago. I would love to have more opportunities (laughs) to speak with girls because there is life after abuse, and you can either go to another place and find drugs, alcohol, and deal with it that way, but there is a way to deal with it in a healthy way where you can be whole, you can have a successful family, have a dream. I did not graduate from high school. I'm the founder of a company now. That's because there's life after abuse, and that is not to shoot my horn, but that is the <laughs> grace of God. <laughs> that is the grace of God.
2: And <laughs> uh, that's a lesson that I, I'll I'll take with me, and I, I certainly value our the short time we have together. And and that's been uh, it's been a wonderful wonderful thing to have you on Just Science. We're going to be linking to various resources that we have, uh, the FTCOe and some of the other groups involved in helping. Um, uh, uh, victims here. So I hope that uh, folks will take the ch- time to uh, to learn more, not only about the case, but about uh, how to approach these cases. And and uh, so uh, we can ho- hopefully uh, make sure to, I don't know if we'll ever eliminate in, in the world that we live in, but certainly try mm-hmm. to uh, bring people to justice when these things happen.
0: Yeah, um, I'd love to work my way out of a job.
2: <laughs> yes. So thank you very much.
0: Yeah. Thank
1: you. Thank you. If you are a victim of sexual assault or would like to talk to a trained advocate, there is a national sexual assault telephone hotline you can call at 1 800 656 4673 or visit rain.org, that's RAINN.org, that's R A I N N.org, or victimsofcrime.org. Next week on Just Science, we will discuss a case with Andrew Greenfield, solved in Canada, using a method of ethnic background DNA testing. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding.